What's up, everybody? This is the Marins Minute. We're going to be bringing you an interview with Daniel Marins, politics writer at Huffington Post, very shortly. But before we do that, I just wanted to kind of give a little preamble today's, to today's show. It's kind of spicy, y'all. Dan and I are going to be dropping some cold water on the left today. We're going to be dropping some hard truths. And I don't suspect that all of you guys are going to agree with it, which is perfectly fine. You know, people tell me all the time, they say, you know, I don't always agree with Adam, but dot, dot, dot. And I think to myself, I don't always agree with myself either. <laughs> you know, like I changed my mind. Uh, my thoughts are constantly evolving. But I do think that Dan Marins and I got to the heart of something really important during the following chat that you're about to hear today. That is to say that a lot of the homilies, the shibboleths, the truism, the truisms, the truths that have circulated on the left over the past decade or more look to be flimsy at best upon further inspection. And if we actually want to organize and strategize for real power in the world, we might want to think about doing things differently. And Dan is always a nice, fresh blast of cold water to the face whenever the left might need it. So I know you guys are going to enjoy this very much. But as always, we cannot do this without the support of our listeners. So if you like what you're hearing today, if you think that we need more principled left contrarianism, not for contrarianism's sake alone, but for the sake of, you know, actually building a viable and successful left that can challenge for power in the next decade, I encourage you to head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe at a level at which you are comfortable. It's always hard to go out on a limb and have critical episodes the way that I did last week with David Dan and the way that I'm doing this week with Dan Marins. And we're going to continue this on in coming weeks. It's always hard to do controversial topics as a media presenter in this world wherein we are totally dependent on the generosity of our listeners. Listen, if you piss off listeners, you're going to lose patrons. And so the, you know, surprise, the impulse, the imperative, the structural incentive of the way that we have constructed this left media ecosystem is to never say anything controversial. It's to never say anything at all that anyone at all might find objectionable. And that, my friends, is not how you build a thriving, successful, and powerful left ecosystem. So, hey... We're doing what we can over at DPS to keep things lively. I hope you will support it into the future. Uh, we're going to need you. We got we to organize this thing for the long haul. I hope you guys enjoy this interview with Dan Marins. I know I did. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother... What's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And joining me for this week's uh, Marins Minute is who else? Dan Marins, politics reporter over at Huffington Post. Thanks for coming back on the program, my man. Always great to be here. Soon to be called um, Buzz Post. <laughs> we getting bought out by BuzzFeed, too? Really? Uh, damn, damn. I didn't get the news that DPS was in on that <laughs> deal. We're getting bought out. Am I going to have to uh, do uh, listicles for every single uh, episode from now We've on? We've got to have Fuck. Uh, emojis. And, no, I mean, I, look, as of now, what we know is in this corporate Russian nesting doll game, for those who haven't heard, we've, we've been taken over by BuzzFeed, which, you know, it's sort of like, um, <laughs> I don't know. Just stop there for a second. Just Think about the sentence that just came out of your fucking mouth. And then let's both transport ourselves back in the time 10 years ago. And I want to hear that all over again. 
Yeah. Anyway, so how many posts we uh, just got taken over by Buzzfeed? Right. Like we would all laugh our asses off. Like what? Right. That like you know ten reasons why like uh, the the turducken is you know the best Thanksgiving food ev with six emojis. Uh, yeah. Anyway, right. here we are, man. We're living in it. Yeah. This no, I mean, um, it's hard to think that you know an outlet that is even more mocked for its kind of internet silliness has acquired HuffPost. But for now, the word is, is that this is a... Um, um, I'm Joe Biden. Um, is that they, <laughs> he's, he's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. No, well, I'm, I'm actually teeing up some spots I want to share with you. But um, nice. um, the, the word out is that we'll, we'll maintain a separate brand. And so, you know, there won't be a HuffBuzz or whatever. So... Now Ariana's been paid off. She's already out of this thing, right? Financially, or did she? Did she just like make buku bucks on this deal? Well, she made a killing on selling her post to AOL in 2011, and then so AOL the sold itself now. to Verizon in a deal that closed in 2016, which had a four-year contract for her. She was booted out about halfway through the first year of her lucrative four-year contract. So I'm sure they paid they paid out the remainder of that contract. So that tells you how much they wanted to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so soon to be Buzz Post. Uh, you guys are going to maintain your brand, um, your job stable. I trust you may have to write some more listicles, but uh, you got it in you. You got them in the tank. So anyway, sorry, to, sorry, to, sorry to uh, get you off off course here. We're gonna, we got a lot to talk about. You've been um, furiously pumping out pieces over there at Buzz Post about the election. Before we dive into the particularities of what happened, what looks like it might have happened, what might be happening, we're talking. We're going to be talking about a lot of things that are emergent as they say things that are uh you know you can only but whiff only get, catch a whiff of it from down the hall uh you know like you know early thanksgiving morning trying to figure out like is that is that pumpkin pie or is that uh, sweet potatoes i can't tell like we're, we're trying to discern the fault lines that are only just now beginning to show themselves inside the democratic party in the american polity in the electoral s- uh, sphere over the coming years in the next two years in the midterm election which could be a terrible fucking shit show for the Democrats and in the next four years. Um, so, but before we get there off the cuff, give me your general election overview. What happened? Who was wrong? Uh, <laughs> uh, who fucked up? Why did they fuck up? What did we see? What are the general trends that we saw now that it looks like the chips have, have fallen and, and the results are more or less out? I think that this was the worst possible outcome for Democrats and progressives short of a full-scale Trump victory. So maybe the second worst, if we were to categorize it that way, the, the, the polls were all wrong. You had Biden spending money and time in places like Texas and, and, and frankly, even Florida in the final stretch that, as it turns out, were, were not nearly as competitive as polling suggested. Polling at, at the state level in particular was off by, you know, beyond the margin of error generally. So five to 10 points. And the reason for that, and I can only go based on what pollsters and demographers have said, which is that the demographics that Trump turns out in increasing numbers this time, mainly infrequent voters without college degrees, primarily but not exclusively white English speakers, and we can get into, you know, his, his modest improvement with, with black Americans and his dramatic improvement with Latinos in a moment. But what that showed really was 
it put the lie once and for all to this idea that increased turnout only ever exclusively benefits Democrats. Uh, I mean, if we're looking at at something like close to based on, you know, they're still counting votes, right, which is crazy, but something like two thirds, close to two thirds of the eligible electorate voted, which is one of the highest percentages nationally since, you know, like the early 1900s. I mean, we're talking like 2008 and 1964 were a big deal in like the high 50s, early 60s, you know, feel free to fact check me listeners. But uh, this was an extraordinary turnout. And a lot of these new people, these these new voters were people who ended up coming out for Trump for the first time. It it certainly looks like turnout benefited Democrats, too. and, And there was a lot of switching, particularly among white college educated suburbanites. But when turnout also benefits the Republicans so dramatically, it really changes this whole idea that there is a a, a net a net and inherent benefit to increase turnout for Democrats. And given you know especially the figures not just in exit polling, which we think is less reliable, but in majority Latino counties, this idea that the you know the browning of the country is is a direct benefit to Democrats is really just right. not true. To run down the list, obviously Senate. If the Democrats shoot the moon and flip both Georgia, Georgia Senate seats, it would be a 50-50 tie, which would be a de facto, you know, sort of one vote Kamala Harris tiebreaker. Senate, uh, the House, they lost ground. They're now going to have, a, a, you know, the slightest, barest of majorities. And in state legislative races, they lost control of both chambers in New Hampshire when they were hoping to flip as many as six chambers. And that, that really teased them up, not just to be in a poor position policy-wise, but to be in a very poor position coming for the coming up redistricting um, in, in the next few months ahead of the 2022 races. And this is what really yeah, gets that's catastrophic. Yeah. I mean, that's where that that's that's right up there with with, you know, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> shifting the Supreme Court by three seats, you know, in a term uh, that's right up there with, you know, a, a generational shift that's going to like affect us for the, the, the long term here. And it's it's fucking catastrophic. We're, we're talking about a decade of of gerrymandered districts and and rigged elections essentially. So, you know, really this this election what I'm hearing from you and, and my take on it it really destroyed like two two myths, like two two homilies, two campfire stories that these these democrats, these corporate centrist democrats like to tell themselves, you know, as they're making their s'mores, you know. The first one is that kind of uh it busted up the turnout magic myth, like the higher turnout automatically it's it's a gift to the democrats and the second one is of course this this campfire story that they've been telling themselves for 20 years ever since i've been politically conscious in, in, any, in any way of this demo, demographic destiny right that all we have to do is sit back and wait and the youths and the and the brown folks and and all the rest of them will lead to you know democratic majorities and we don't have to do shit Rahm Emanuel, we can you know tag to the right we we don't have to give them anything Demographic destiny, baby. And we saw that completely smashed to bits. You've been writing about, quite a bit about that. So we're going to get, we're going to get into this in, in great just, detail. Just but what are those, a, a what are the smashing of those two campfires? You know, I, I, I think, you know, one of the bigger pro- proponents of the turnout theory was the left's own Bernie Sanders, right? It was, always, you're not wrong. Like, you're not wrong. And so, but then the question is what kind of turnout inspired right. by what kind of policies? And if anything, you know, when you have a Biden versus Trump, we have a Biden versus Trump and the Democrats tell people this is the most important election of our lifetime. The Trump supporters agree. And guess what? They show up. <laughs> if you don't give them an alternative, 
guess guess who they they fill in the bubble for you know and so you're not wrong you're not wrong but i don't think that that necessarily falsifies sanders narrative it just it cert- but it certainly does add some some complexity to it well, um, i think i think no the doubt. mistake again was what kind of turnout right it, it's 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 not that it you really on either side you want a selective increase you want you know if you're the tea party in 2010 you want your kind of died in the wool rural conservatives to show up and the you know the um sort of bog standard democrats and progressive activist types to not show up and if you're frankly and, and if you're aoc in 2018 you you want your uh, gentrifying astoria residents to show up and some of the old timers maybe to stay home and and i think the same thing for bernie and and i think the mistake was in in you know I, I, because i do think that all of this is just as devastating for the left, which has posited this theory that no policy or message compromise or no dramatic policy or message compromise is necessary to win in difficult places because of the turnout magic, because of the door knocking magic, what have you. And at the very least, we just don't have a case study of that. I'm not saying that there wasn't a kernel of truth in, in some of what Bernie's saying, but the better formula is selective turnout. And you can't necessarily engineer that. And so what can you engineer and and, and how, I think, is the real question. I, I think this is, a, I, you know, I mean, look, th- I bring on the show because you ask the tough questions. You, you're you not uh, someone who's like blinkered or whatever, or, or totally, you know, blinded by ideology uh, in any way, shape or form. You're, you're bold and brave enough to, to, to bust up the shibboleths and all the rest of it. Uh, and I, I, you know, I love you for that. And, 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 but at the same time, to me, it seems like this is more of a, a busting up of the, like say the Jim Clyburn narrative, that kind of, um, wishful thinking that, oh, Bernie's going to get them all riled up and then, and they're, they're going to in turn sort of, you know, uh, tr- we'll just sort of translate that enthusiasm for our piece of shit, wishy-washy centrist neoliberal. And by the transitive property of, I don't know, wishful thinking, um, that kind of enthusiasm will then, you know, uh, translate to, to the polling, to the, to the booth. Uh, and I think, you know, what we saw is that, you know, that, that energy turned up by progressive materialist offers during the, during the primaries was just, was completely squandered in every way, shape and form. And, and what happened was that people showed up for Trump because he promised them that he wouldn't shut down the economy and, and prevent them from working. And all Biden had to do was promise him a check. And he couldn't do it. And the question is, why, why couldn't he do it? Who are these corporate Dems beholden to? Uh, you know, what, what, is, what, is, what is causing this crack up inside of the Democratic Party that is making it a, a, an, uh, like a very unwieldy vessel, to, to, put it, to put it lightly, right? I mean, I talked a lot about this last week with Dave, with Dave Dayan. Um, you know, the Democratic Party is, is this highly like unseaworthy vessel right now with a lot of different factions inside of it. And it seems like both factions are doomed because of the limitations that, that are brought on by the other. When Abigail Spanberger says, listen, these progressives are fucking up everything for me. I'm trying to I'm trying to run this centrist campaign. I'm trying to, you know, uh, win over these Republican housewives in my suburban district. I'm trying not to scare people with defunding the police. And, and AOC is out here on Twitter fucking this up for me. And AOC says, Abigail Spanberger's over here fucking this up for me. I'm trying to win over the disenfranchised, uh, the people who, who are getting thrown out of, the, uh, thrown out of work, who are unemployed, uh, the people who want to see a more progressive, enlightened, sort of culturally, you know, you know the cultural PMC, the Park Slope crowd. Uh, and, and Spanberger's over here fucking this up for me. 
And in a way, they're both right. Right now, I obviously know which side I fall on there in that ideological dispute. Uh, my values are obviously on the AOC spectrum of things, and not with a, a CIA, uh, you know, what former CIA uh, Abigail Spanberger. But there's some truth to that, right? Uh, House divided cannot stand on that basis. How do we? Yeah. I mean, how do you interpret the results on on that basis? Look, let me just preface what I'm about. I'm about to offer with things that I've said on the show before, which is I want Medicare for all. I, I want free college. I want a green new deal. I want a full employment economy personally. And all, you know, just a, a society that is, is closer to the universal living standards and equity of, let's say a Nordic country, you know, American style and with our, you know, multiracial flavor. Fine. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're all, that, all, all that, you're all that, all that, it off. But as you said, yeah, right, yeah. I, I'm, I'm reporting this stuff on the ground, and I'm trying to figure, mm-hmm. figure out what's going on. And I would mm-hmm. say, I'll start with just my short kind of diagnosis of what works and what doesn't. I think that it is absolutely important to have a heavy economic message. I don't know that the maximalist left wing message. Uh, is is the only way to do that. And I don't disbelieve the idea that it's not, even the economic piece of it is not a liability in some places because I do think, for example, people that have health insurance already, rationally or not, are afraid of change and, and they lack confidence and sort of experience with a state system that is yeah. capable of, um, delivering results efficiently and, and reliably. And so, yeah. you know, because, you know, the state system, they do know it's the DMV and the post office or the state system that is incapable of, uh, of, of finding agreement on a, on another relief check, right. During COVID. Sure, so, yeah. and, and so that, that's the first piece of it. So you can, there are, there are moderates who run on or relative moderates or mainstream progressives who run on a kind of forthright articulate populist message and uh, with sh- that is still shy of the maximalist platform of a left-wing candidate. And, you know, they are capable of making that work. The second piece of it is, the thing I know for sure, is that uh, in any part of the country that is not already deep blue and urban and, you know, deeply democratic and urban, the cultural message that gets the most play time, that most airtime nationally um, is, is a burden. And that is the defund the police, uh, perceived apologetics for, for rioting, um, you know, canceling celebrities over calling, you know, questioning narratives about transgender kids, what have you, whatever pet culture war caricature one has out there, that stuff is toxic. I would add to that list sometimes abortion rights I, you know my my th- that was used very heavily in, in south texas oil and gas jobs again in in, in south texas but also pennsylvania and, and and parts of the country where this is not just an abstract thing but is a very real part of your way of life even if you're promising to replace it with something and even when you have a standard bearer who is tacking to the center on this stuff biden didn't necessarily handle all of this perfectly well. So then we go to what's the difference between national and a candidate in their district? Can a candidate 
break with the national narrative. And I tend to agree with the analysts who, who, who say that at this particular moment in history, that's become harder and harder. And so if you are Abigail Spanberger, you're having to answer for defund the police, whether you like it or not, because Fox News is running with it. Even outlets like mine are because, you know, if this is a bold, new, interesting policy, you know, some of the most famous members of Congress are pushing it. It becomes a self-propelling narrative. The mere act of having to answer for that makes it an expensive idea for somebody like Spanberger. And there are communities that that are predominantly democratic, predominantly minority, where the idea is extremely unpopular. So the the question then is, you're you're not right. right. Let's let's question is, did Joe Biden run on any bread and butter platforms that could cast a national narrative uh, that could rival defund the police? And could Abigail Spanberger and people like her run it, run their own local message on their own. And, mm-hmm. and to that end, I just want to offer a couple stats before, before I let you push back, Adam. I had the media watching firm that HuffPost, uh, that HuffPost uh, contracts with. It's called Cancer Media slash CMAG. And, and they, they merged. It's like Ad Analytics is one of their competitors. Um, do a rundown of, of broadcast TV. So not uh, and national cable, but a lot of cable is, is localized and they can't monitor it mm-hmm. as, as easily. Um, uh, of, of Biden and, and pro-Biden groups, the, the themes that, that how they broke down, 56% of these spots were about health care, 12% about taxes, 3% about minimum wage, 7% about education, 7% about race, 60% about Trump, 3% about foreign policy, and 28% about the soft themes of unity, dignity, decency, and restoring the soul of the country. So um, now it's interesting, obviously, those, those numbers don't add up to 100 because there's overlap, right, on something about Trump and something about healthcare. I want to play just a couple samples for you. This one's about COVID. So that's that's COVID, and that probably actually does tag as healthcare as well. Um, though I, I'm working on getting that separated out. This one's about the minimum wage. It's time we had a $15 an hour minimum wage, so families can earn a living and get ahead. As president, I'll make sure we get it done. I approve this message. I can't do without you. And then I just want to play one from Spanberger to give a sense of how she was messaging. Spanberger. In the last two years, I've held 25 town halls in person, on the phone, and online. Prescription drug costs come up every time. That's why I don't take money from corporate PACs. Pharmaceutical companies have too much power already. Whether I'm leading the fight to lower the cost of drugs like insulin or to give Medicare the power to negotiate, I approve this message because I'm taking them on to get costs down for you. So I just I just wanted to play those to com- and, and cite some of those figures to complicate the narrative that no Democrats were trying to run on a kind of kitchen table economics message. Um, I think Republicans were much more focused and relentless and voluminous in their attempts to paint Democrats as soft on 
cops and pro defunding crazy people. Um, mm-hmm. But and, and I think some of the Democrats who aired ads with cops saying, no, I don't support defunding ended up faring a little bit better. Some didn't. Right. Including Cameron Webb uh, in, in a district near you. He's a black doctor whose dad was a cop. Right. He said some things that were sort of could be interpreted as sympathetic. You know, the, the he was sort of like, yeah, you know, we should be thinking about resources and money and whatever. And the Republicans just went absolutely bananas with that. And he then ran ads, you know, sort of saying, no, I, I love the police and everything. And it, and it didn't quite work out. And that's a district that includes a lot of rural areas, but also Charlottesville. So so that's paid, what we call paid media. In terms of earned media, I think that it, it's clear that Biden did a much worse job of emphasizing these sort of kitchen table economic issues. And that, you know, if you look at the convention, there wasn't a clear economic theme that drew 20 million viewers. If you look at the debates, which were drawing uh, tens of millions more, the, I don't have the, the figures handy. I don't think there was a clear economic theme either, though he did have sort of that phrase of Park Avenue versus Scranton. So it was a little bit different than Hillary in that respect. But you compare that to Trump and his ability to saturate the media narrative. Uh, you know, he was running ads claiming that he was tough on pharma, which was not true. Uh, he, he, you know, he, he could point to the $1,200 check, which a lot of people did credit him for. And uh, he was holding rallies all the time that, you know, reflected a level of excitement and, and, and brought people on the ground in a way that Biden wasn't able to or, or wasn't willing to. So, I'm just putting all that out there. And I think it's important yeah, yeah. to take, no, no, take all, all that into all account well when we're assessing this, this is all, how they This did. is all well taken. Yeah. But to me, to me, it's more about, it's more about a question of, of getting back to the structural dilemma of, of the rifts inside the Democratic Party, which is the question is like, why then, you're, you're, you're mentioning that, you know, the, these people are um, beholden to this national narrative that doesn't serve them. They have to spend a shitload of money. And you detail this in a number of your pieces that I'm going to uh, definitely including the show notes here, um, they had to detail, they had to uh, expend a lot of money, a lot of resource, a lot of time, a lot of energy, debunking the smears and the slanders that were coming at them from, from this, this national narrative about you know, defund and, you know, being pro riot and, and pro disorder and anti-police and all the rest of it. And this stuff doesn't play well in a normal America outside of uh, the lefty podcast sphere. We have to be honest about that. But then the question I have is why are the, why is the democratic party allowing their, sort of passively allowing the media to set their national narrative. And that's precisely because they cannot, uh, they cannot unite these fractions under their umbrella with a coherent national alternative message, right? What do you say when, when Fox comes at you and says, whoa, AOC wants to defund the police? Because she does. Right. <laughs> Spanberger doesn't. Right. Uh, Pelosi doesn't. Biden doesn't. But AOC does, and so does the squad. And, and 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 while they may have a much more nuanced kind of take on that than your average Twitter activist, they themselves, the squad that is, are, are in, a, in a way sort of beholden to that Twitter activist in, in the same way that the that the you know that the Democratic Party is beholden to AOC. There's there's this larger ecosystem of of radical demands that are becoming more and more divorced from the the, wor- the world as it exists as most people experience it and most people live it and and you can chalk this i mean we could we could have a series on this as the why the political sphere is is becoming fractured in the way that it is because of our technological forms of communication because of podcasts because of twitter because of cable news because of you know youtube and all the rest of it but you know I, 
I think you are right. You know, I, I don't know that I agree with the the, the framing of all of this, but I, you're absolutely correct to blow to try to blow the whistle on on the way that uh, some of the the you know the, the kind of left narratives about what what is or isn't happening don't hold a lot of water. Um, so I want to spend the rest of the time to kind of talk more about why that might be the case, right? Why that might be the case. We all know that if, if you have any normie friends, if you spend any time, as you do more than any of us, talking to regular ass people, right? People for whom politics is not a hobby, normies in that sense. Why did they vote for Trump? Because Trump promised to keep them at work. Trump promised a, a kind of bravery, a sort of Bolsonaro-esque, be tough uh, imperative to be tough and keep your head up and and um, and don't live in fear. And it, man, that's a very seductive narrative, isn't it? I mean, who wants to live in fear? Who wants to who wants to hide behind you know uh, the the, uh, the the bunker or whatever instead of storming the barricades in in, in this you know and these in these kind of metaphorical narratives? Why did people vote for Trump in your experience? That's my hypothesis. You you, you talk to the, the people over the past. Sure. Many, many months. You know, it's funny. I would be a lot more humble about my anecdotal conversations prior to the just massive polling catastrophe, right? So if the numbers are that wrong, how much worse could my individual conversations be? I, I think, you know, one of the stories that I did, I went to Pennsylvania where the Latino community just mushroomed in size because of tens of thousands of people leaving Puerto Rico after the 2017 storm. and Interestingly enough, not super well known in the Lehigh Valley, places like Allentown, Bethlehem, and then outside of there in, in, in a city like Reading. These have become uh, major hubs for Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, um, some of whom left the New York metro because of housing costs and some of whom, you know, if you're Puerto Rican, you can just show up. And what I was what I was surprised to learn in, in the 24 people I interviewed for the story uh, or, or voices I included, I think I interviewed more. About half of them were committed to voting Biden. Another six or so were voting for Trump. And, uh, you know, handful were undecided or planning not to vote. And when I spoke to the people who were supportive of Trump, I think there was just, as you say, a general identification with his vibe. You know, one thing that his vibe, his demeanor, uh, a sense that the country was strong, I think a sense that the pre-pandemic economy was excellent. I mean, there, there was more substantial wage growth due to the tight labor market in 2018 and 2019 than there had been in, in many, many years. And that was finally because we're, employers were finally competing for workers. I mean, it, the, the reasons for that are, are, you know, many. I mean, I think that it was the ninth or 10th year of the Obama era recovery. And of course, there was a regressive Keynesian stimulus in the form of these tax cuts, but you know, that, that may have incre- affected things on the margins. I spoke to a lot of working class people also who were really confused about the pandemic. I mean, in some ways, the lockdowns are victims of their own success to the extent that the lockdowns have spared people massive viral spread. The fear of the disease is far more abstract than the economic pain. I quoted a Puerto Rican hotel housekeeper who, you know, paid the the final month's rent on his home rather than be evicted and then moved into the hotel where he was working. And you know, I mean, it's effectively homeless. That's what that is. And the state hadn't processed his unemployment claim yet, you know, for the two, three month period where the hotel was shut down. That was real to him. And he just sort of said to me, I don't know what to believe, but in a time of crisis, and he was also evangelical. And he just said, in a time of crisis, I'm just going to stick with the guy who's already there. 
So sometimes it, it can be as simple as that. One thing people don't understand, I think a lot of PMC types, a lot of sort of uh, white collar types, uh, the, the liberal, uh, you know, mainstream, they don't recognize that workers like regularly risk their life to go to go to work. Like, it's not the first time that workers across this country have had to choose between their job and their and their lively and their well-being, their health. They do that every fucking day. You know what you I mean? Have so paid this sick is leave, a, a slightly right? they don't have paid sick leave. They um, they show up with, you know, a fever. Uh, you know, they they take they take risks with their health constantly to stay alive and to stay afloat. I mean, I've done it myself, you know, I've having been in, in a kind of low wage service sector. I mean, everybody everybody has to take, you know, you don't have health care. You're like, fuck it. I got this lump on my chest. Fuck, I hope it works out. Oh well, what are you gonna do? You know? Like we make these calculations as workers every day. And so then this there's is a, just broader, a slightly there's a more broader, extreme version. I think kind of level of acceptance that you can't control your life too. I mean, it, yeah, you, know, you, totally. you have to live for the moment because you're not sure of, 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 of what's going to come next. I, I also interviewed two women who were clearly kind of like working poor, or working class in Reading, uh, who uh, one of, I guess one of them said she wasn't registered as any kind of a voter. The other said she was a Democrat. They were sisters. And the one who said she rarely, if ever voted, was a crane operator at a recycling plant. And you know, it was sort of a comical scene. She was sitting in the passenger seat of a, of a car outside the Dollar General and was balancing like a, um, a Budweiser Mango Rita on her lap, you know. Um, and her sister, who was driving, said, you know, I'm not sure if I can vote because I, I just got out of doing time for unpaid municipal fines for not sending my kid to school because my kid didn't want to go to school. You know, like classic poor people type stuff in America. And they were both Puerto Rican. And they said to me, oh, you know, we think what Trump did for the island was good. You know, the officials on the island are corrupt. So he was right to, you know, be careful about the kind of money he spent. And then I said to them, this was a this was something I would ask all Latino voters, I would say, what do you think about how he's been nasty to you? And these two women said to me, yeah, but, you know, like we make fun of black people all the time and black people make fun of us and we're all just making fun of each other. And I thought that was also an interesting kind of I mean, <laughs> these are sort of, again, take yeah. take these anecdotes for what they are. But to the extent that people were voting against him, it was more like Democrats. I associate Democrats with being pro worker or pro health care, pro education spending. It wasn't it, it wasn't generally he's he's a he's a. There, there, there were there were plenty of people with sort of visceral anti-Trump responses, but you know there were there were also people who were voting against him who didn't much care what he had to say, um, and I think that that's kind of interesting. And you know, I I, I met a an eighteen year old Mexican American grocery store clerk at Walmart. She said, "I don't know anything about politics, but my mom told me to vote for Trump, and I'm going to vote for him." And she said, "I said, well, you know, uh, why?" And she's like. I don't know. He's funny. And then I said, well, what about the mean things he said about Latinos? She's like, you know what? I asked my mom about that. And um, <laughs> my mom said her whole perspective has changed since she got that um, that money, that check, and that he's grown on her. So, you know, that again, like the so the I think you can see some of the elements uh, coming into place there. And uh, beyond that, I, I can. I can say that there's an element of base enthusiasm type stuff and the way Trump is able to saturate a media cycle. I mean, I met voters who couldn't necessarily tell you 
what Biden stood for. Of course, as I've I've tried to complicate the narrative that Biden didn't run on anything clear. Yeah, but, yeah I, I don't know if I could tell you what Biden stood right, for. But, but really, and, and the, the strategy was not standing for anything to try to be as unobjectionable as possible just to sort of uh, beat the orange man, right? When we saw that didn't play, did it? It seemed like an it seemed like an, an easy victory. Again, I, I want to complicate it a little bit because the message was a, a bit different in the television ads, but certainly in what we call the earned media in terms of his TV media yeah. appearances, it was debate limited and and inoffensive. And you know, there was another moment in my reporting on Latinos in Pennsylvania that that struck that stuck out to me, which was that uh, in Bethlehem, you know, there were suburban women from New Jersey from like nice areas of New Jersey who had driven down as part of their local resistance groups to canvas and help, you know, register Latinos to vote and, and recruit them to vote for Democrats in, in Bethlehem outside of a Seatown grocery store that was high foot traffic, specifically for Latinos. And how'd that go? Did that backfire? And, well, they, they had a Spanish. Did they, did they end up pushing people in the arms of Trump? No, no, you know, they, no, so there was one not moment that, not I that cringy. There was one moment I captured that I thought was remarkable, which was, and it's in my, my piece on Latinos in Pennsylvania, which again, you know, it, it sure looks like based on our, with the data we do have, it's a little harder when we're relying on exit polling and not on majority Latino counties. You know, Biden did not even do that hot in, in those areas, but uh, even relative to Clinton. But there was this moment that, regardless Latino or not, struck me as kind of exemplifying some of the, the problems that we're identifying here, which is that, you know, th- this woman who had come down from New Jersey said, vote for Biden. He'll do free college. And a man stops it. <laughs> free college. <laughs> and and uh, and he was uh, and he, you know, he, he said, OK, I'll register to vote. And. Uh, yeah, you got me with that. And yeah. I talked to him afterwards. And, you know, he was also he was born in, in, in the mainland US, but he had Puerto Rican parents. And, you know, he thinks that the way the mainland treats Puerto Rico is shit and the way everybody treats everybody in the US is shit. He said, what's going on with the government? My neighbors are getting evicted right now. It's all bullshit. And he and he was like 50 years old about a, a dispatcher for a trucking company and said he had never voted in his life. But he, he just thinks it's all bullshit. So this is kind of the this is the kind of voter that that the, that left wing activists think maybe exists. There are too many of them, uh, but there are certainly some. And you know, and he was just like, but you know, I got daughters coming up to college age. If she's saying that there's free college, I'll give Biden a try. You know, and so I think that there, it's this confluence of different issues. I do think that. The broader national media narrative that was created not through advertising, but through the candidates themselves, their appearances on national television, and the types of figures who do suck up all the oxygen in the party, and I think we should get to that in a moment, was vote for decency. By the way, you like this guy a little bit more than Hillary Clinton, so it's okay, and this time the narrative's going to work. And from Trump, I, I gave you jobs, and this guy's a radical leftist. Look at all the defund the police crazy people. And... By the way, his running mate's a black woman with a weird name. I mean, I, I did pick up on that, too. And, you know, I, I attended a pre-election day rally in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and it was one of five enormous multi-thousand people rallies that Trump did that day. A huge spectacle, right? He comes in so proud to be an American. You know, in the lead up, there is Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater, which is kind of ironic and funny, because <laughs> if there was ever a fortunate son, it, w- it would yeah. be the president. Um, 
you know, uh, and then he, he closes out with YMCA hilariously. Right. And he's mm -hmm. up in his fists. Mm -hmm. And there was that super cut of him dancing to YMCA and, and, and they love it. It's a carnival-esque atmosphere. And this was one of five rallies in swing states that he held the day before that had thousands and thousands of people. And the Democrats weren't even knocking doors, by the way. They, they, they started in the final few weeks, but that, you know, I mean, that was traditionally, you know, a Democratic advantage. And that's something I wrote about as well. And people really think that mattered. Trump basically was saying Biden's trying to tell you he's not a radical leftist, but he is. He's lying. And by the way, the proof of it is he's senile and his running mate, Kamala, Kamala Mala is going to be in charge. Like, I mean, they were saying things like this, you know, making jokes about her name. And certainly a lot of the supporters who I interviewed were as well. And, and this was the narrative that you heard over and over again. Biden is senile and his radical leftist running mate, even if Biden hasn't sold out to the crazy people uh, his running mate has. Of course, you know, it's kind of ironic because the traditional left wing critique of, of Kamala is that that she was a hard ass and, uh, you know, a tough on crime prosecutor. But but setting that aside, she certainly has indulged more of the rhetoric, the woke rhetoric recently. So, so that that was kind of what went down. I do think we should talk about, though. The conundrum it does pose when we live in a media environment for all the reasons that we alluded to, where the voices that may get the most coverage and the greatest ability to shape right. coverage are the most left wing in the Democratic Party yeah. and not just the most left wing, but the most woke. And what that does, whose responsibility is that? Is that the media's responsibility? Is it the left wing electeds or is it the centrists? And I sort of have a theory that it's a combination of them, but I'll, I'll let you kind of prompt me on that. So this actually takes takes us right to where I wanted to end up. So this is a nice little uh, so, semi segue. The question is, you know, you know, this is something that the, that the social stuff needs to take responsibility for. And, and even just saying this out loud is like, you know, I don't know, might make me a more of a even more of a pariah than I am on the on the socialist left. But look, the fact that this kind of specter of the far left exists in the kind of um, you know mainstream political imagination. And now what are, right whatever the content of that is is like debatable. Does it have any content? Is it just a specter? Is it just sort of like a ooh, far left, right? Uh, is it just like just nasty kind of like um uppity, you know, uh college educated, you know, uh, purple blue-haired, you know, libs. Whatever it is that it conjures in the imagination of normies across the country. The left needs to take responsibility for that. We need to take responsibility for that because it's something that we're going to eat shit for for the coming years. It's not going away, you know. And and, and and so the question then is, how do we take responsibility for that in a way that, how do we transcend this kind of left pressure group, sort of marginal pressure group posture that we've adopted right now? And then how do and, and how do we then move to a, a, a posture, a positioning of ourselves in society? Where we're ready for power, where we're ready to actually win things, where we're ready to actually potentially run government, right? It's a question of how do you go into power as opposed to being a pressure group. And, and that, the left is just not, we're doubling down on the pressure group posturing. And, and we're not thinking seriously about how to change people's minds. And I have to real quick, a very quick segue. It's something I tweeted real, like 50 times about yesterday. So it's still hot on my brain. It's like the only thing I give a shit about anymore, Dan, is is look if the left doesn't win more people over to trade unions we're fucked trade unions have historically been how con political consciousness is shaped among normies for the past 100 plus years 
And and the and, and the, the 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 lack of trade union density right now is what you're seeing when you're talking to these people, to these normies out in broader society. They don't have unions. They don't have political conversations at their workplaces. To the extent that they do, they're very um, um, paranoid, conspiratorial, and all the rest of it. And so then the question, yeah, whatever, this sort of meandering provocation that I want to kind of let us let let us uh, lead lead us into the second half of this conversation is who is the far left in your, in your, in your conversations? What do people see as the far left? We got to get outside of our own, our own framing, our own echo chamber, uh, sort of understandings about, oh, the, we're the good guys, right? That's who, that's who we are. We're the good guys. We want all the good things for the people and, and start thinking more about what is it that the average normie thinks about? What comes to mind when they think about the far left, what, what did your discussions uh, reveal to you about that? So let's start with what the far left claims it represents, because to me, one of the more interesting responses to Spanberger Gate was from Rashida Tlaib of Detroit, who said, you're trying to silence my black constituents, etc." And this is kind of a typical move that my radical ideology, my woke intersectional, right? So she does have a an economic left ideology as well, but it's it's one sort of coded in race and gender focused rhetoric and, and, and the rhetoric of marginality. And she was arguing that her predominantly poor black and Latino and Arab district is somehow being silenced if if Abby, if they listen to Abby Spanberger's dictum not to use the phrase defund the police. I mean, that's just completely factually inaccurate. There is no... What does the, what the, what the polling say about that? I'm sure you've uh, dug into it. I mean, uh, a majority of black Americans oppose reducing funding for the police. This is... There have been many interesting case studies, even here in New York City, of opposition from city council members, even the modest cuts to the budget that occurred uh, this past cycle. There, there were some progressive black members that favored it. There were some, there were, but there were plenty of mainstream black Democrats who represent more working class and poor neighborhoods who were very wary of it and very concerned about people like AOC who were pushing, who were who claiming the budget didn't go far enough. These are people where the specter of violent crime is very real in their lives, just as the specter of, of police harassment is. And those two thoughts, I think, fit neatly inside the heads of the the large black and Latino and urban and poor white masses who have the the most frequent contact with violent crime and the most frequent contact with violent police as well. And they tend to want reform, accountability, structural changes to the environment, as well as effective policing that makes their lives better and safer. And so this I would say it's more likely that Rashida uh, wins, uh, not because of that, but despite those types of positions. And, and, and that is mm-hmm. just all the evidence we have suggests that. If you look at the strength of a Joe Biden in these quarters, if you look at the strength of an Andrew Cuomo in these quarters, if you look at the fact that uh, you know the, the black establishment in Detroit, uh, and, and including the black police chief, pushed back on Tlaib herself, over sort of issues that she had with the facial recognition technology the police were using. So these are complicated things that in general, I don't even know if they line up along class lines. You know, I I just think that the broad majority of society uh, hates crime and 
whatever issues they have with police, they secure in their community. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's like Adolf Reed has said it. I, I think he attributes the, this to his son, uh, to Ray. Both have been on DPS multiple times, but he said, you know, you might be black in America, but as long as you got a car and a television set, you know, you're going to want to, you're going to want police to respond when you pick up the phone and dial 911. Right. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's absurd to believe that the melanin in your skin has any correlation with whether or not you want to feel safe and protected. And, in this, and if in your this kid world. walks to school, even if, do you want even, them to walk to right. school with the fear of getting their ass kicked? I mean, I mean, that's, exactly. which is a very real thing. So, I mean, again, these are, these are community, like just, and, and think about the inconsistency in some of these narratives, right? In the, uh, sort of eulogies for former New York City Mayor David Dinkins, people were saying, well, you know, he brought down the crime wave before Giuliani did. And what was the big thing that, that he did to do that? More cops. That was what he did, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for right, for better or worse. Um, you, you know, uh, in Chicago, I mean, there have been grassroots protests because for a period of time, there were cops escorting children to school to make the school walk safer. And because of the school closures, the walks have gotten longer so that, you know, austerity has an element to play here as well. But it was the community crying out when Rom said, I can't just keep deploying police to these corners all the time. You know, I don't have the money for it. You know, um, so, so th- these are these are very complicated things. And I think overall, the perception is that these are kind of out of touch academic types to the extent that people even have an impression of what the left is and, and what it means, who are more concerned with, and that these, these out of touch academic radical types are more concerned with ideas that I don't understand about the environment, about uh, cultural policy, about rhetoric, um, even about victimhood. You know, maybe they don't see themselves as um, oppressed, right? That maybe they see themselves as just people who are trying to grind it out and looking for people in government to improve their lives in whatever sort of nominal material way as possible. And then they see these groups of people who uh, seem really excited about proposals at the very best that feel untested and risky relative to what their experiences are. And we've seen that from normie Democrats in largely working class communities of color time and time again. And we've seen it from working class voters who are infrequent voters or or vote Republican in the end. And, um, you know, I, I, that that's kind of the impression I hear is kooky, scary, out of touch. And mm. in terms of taking responsibility, I think there's been a lot of debate about what Democrats are in the position to dictate to activists. And I'd be the first to say the answer is nothing, right? But Democrats themselves or left-wing Democrats themselves and the organizational infrastructure that supports them co-opted this, this particular phrase and it, and it was and it's hard to pin it all on one phrase, and I don't think it should be, but I think you do have a slightly greater responsibility if you're a stake if you're an elected official or if you're an organization with a multi-million dollar budget that claims to speak for the progressive left, because a lot of these uh, Democrats ended up getting tagged just by virtue of being endorsed by some of these organizations, groups like Sunrise, groups like NARAL. Uh, in other words, the cost of saying you're pro-choice or pro bold climate action is being associated with this slogan as well. So that's a, uh, that is a, a, a sticky uh, thing to encounter. And finally, in terms of your bottom line question, Adam, about unionization, and, I, and I, I agree, right? I think that that is the key to class consciousness in this country, unionization. 
the question or just any kind of po- coherent political consciousness right, right? i mean because you're right i mean this stuff doesn't fall along class lines it's right and, and we have labor unions that are good at, at inculcating that political consciousness sure. and others that 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 pursue a much narrower kind of um uh interest group style agenda and we we, we wouldn't want uh, like the building trades right. to, to to and and, and the building <laughs> trades to take over the political consciousness of this country. a lot of their members are so culturally conservative that they think it's like a big victory when they can get them to vote for a democrat at all and so that's kind of the dance mm. that they're playing but um in order to get that, like, what would you be willing to sacrifice? If you really think that that is the the sort of root of the revolution, what sorts of, like, would you be willing to do an honest assessment of the fact that there has not been an AOC-style win or even a Katie Porter-style win in a heavily blue-collar um, swing area? You know, people point to a case study here or there. Um, but for the most part, it's been your Connor Lambs and your Abby Spanbergers and a handful of others who, who win in these areas that are semi-rural or, or uh, largely working class and not traditionally democratic or, or have been moving away from Democrats in recent years. What, what, what are you willing to, to do to assess which tactics work? Um, and I think at, you know, that, is a, that is, I think, a, a very difficult question uh, to be asked. And I think for the most part, the answer on the left is there are no trade-offs uh, that are worth it. And, uh, and, and and still, we don't need trade-offs. And I'm not sure what kind of an electoral humbling needs to occur to convince people that there are clear trade-offs um, and not just on the cultural issues, but but on on, on frankly, some other policies as well. I think, I mean, your, your, your point about needing to make priorities is absolutely well taken. It's something I preach about on the show constantly. So I, I've got no bone to pick there whatsoever. The left, I mean, this doesn't even come from me primarily. It's people who are far more accomplished and, and more long-term on the left than I am, people who have 50-year careers on the left and so on and so forth. It's just people's unwillingness to make priorities and to think strategically about first this, then that. First, you do this so that you can get that. And it doesn't mean that you don't care about the fringe issues as much. It just means that you recognize that they're friends' issues. You'll never build the power necessary to, to ever deal with them in a successful way if you don't. You know, to me though, the question is more. The question is one that's more about. Um, it's more about how do we envision ourselves and what are we projecting out into the universe? Are we? And uh, in, in, again, this is all wrapped up in in technological forms of communication and organizing and the media and sort sort of societal organization and that like. You know, if it, just like if it bleeds, it leads, right? If it's fucking radical, then you know, then it's going to make it on every lefty podcast and 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 you know, and and far left kind of uh, nonprofit, foundation funded organizational imperative, and and the left doesn't think about broad popular demands. Now, I mean, I would, I would, so I, we're in agreement there, hundred percent. I would push back a little bit, and I would just, I would say that you know. I don't think I don't think electoral politics is really going to be our entry point. I think it's how you take a take the temperature, how how you judge your success uh, or failure, um, your ability to kind of um, transmit your ideas, translate your ideas or not. And in that respect, yeah, I mean, this has is, there ever been a labor this movement? Is, this is a poor. Has show. there ever been a period of mass growth in the labor movement in this country without a, a friend, friendly? Um, You're right. Majority. Absolutely not. And I, 
And, and I, yeah, and you're right. You're right. You're, you're on board 100%. The question then is, where is that entry point? Like, right? Like, how do we get that? Because, I mean, like the, the <laughs> you know, the, um, the Silicon Valley Fairfax Democrats are, are not going to give us that labor victory, right? And the question then is, who's going to give us, who's going to give us that labor victory? I mean, what are we, what are you we know? talking and, about? And, so I'm not sure like what trade-off, what trade-off we're going to need to make in order to win that in the electoral realm. I think it's going to have to be a more society-wide, you know, focusing on organizing at the point of production, organizing on a class basis in society that was going to ultimately force the hand inside the Democratic Party to, to deliver something like a new New Deal. So I agree with your diagnosis. I, I don't, you know, then again, you know, your 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 report on the electoral beat, I'm kind of a highfalutin uh, left strategy guy. And so, you know, you always... What is it? Uh, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So we're probably both, you know, definitely leaning in on on our our um, more kind of niche specialties here. But but I don't think that we're in general disagreement. Do you think? You know, I'm I'm just a little skeptical of the word organize. I, you know, I, I mm-hmm. it, it seems like whether you're in the the kind of um, Jacobin dead pundits left, if you will, or the uh, kind of AOC squad left. It's the answer to everybody's questions. And what I've seen in our current moment is that the organize, the real organizing, the mind changing, um, that even precedes something like a union organizing drive occurs on cable news. It occurs on social media and it, mm-hmm. we're living in an incredibly media polarized society where everything is looked at through the lens of the media you consume and then the tribal identity that you adopt through that media, um, you know, to the point where pollsters have asked people their opinions on the exact same policies and the answer changed completely based on which partisan politician they, they said was associated with it. And um, a union member who watches Fox News or associates with certain Facebook groups maybe the union membership accounts for a three to five point difference in how that Fox news viewer uh, looks at the world. But for the most part, the important thing, and and maybe even the important thing as to whether they're going to join the union or be part of an organizing drive is whether they watch Fox in the first place. And I don't know what the answer is in terms of being able to penetrate that world where these are the ways that we get our information. And, um, You know, you talked about Silicon Valley and the suburban moms. I'm not sure that, like, I mean, if Biden had a Democratic Senate and organized labor were able able to get something like the PRO Act passed, which would dramatically increase the penalties for violations of labor law, including suppression of organizing drives and outlaw right to work laws at the state level, which I don't think actually that provision would survive into legal form. I mean, that would be a, a generational title shift enabled by uh, a majority obtained through the votes of suburbanites. So I, I just don't. But but well, OK, who else is in that Senate? Uh, the, the type of Dems who just passed Prop 24 in California. Right. And yeah. so, you know, so I'm, I'm with you like I, people, you know, people say I'm a left puncher. I, you know, again, uh, to, to quote the, the late great Michael Brooks, that's that's like uh, criticizing a basketball coach for making his team run drills and practice to get better. Right. Like I want the left to get better. I want to I want to criticize and push the left to do better because I want to win shit. 
We all desperately need the left to win shit if we don't want to be on an increasingly boiling planet and, and, and worse. Uh, but, but to my mind, you know, um, is this, you know, the left could do better. But the fact is, we're just not numerically big enough or strong enough to, to really set the, the agenda. And the failure lies in the hands of the mainstream, the establishment, the corporate Dems. I mean, those are the people who just passed Prop 24. This is going to be the national playbook going forward. Prop 22, for you mean for Uber Lyft drivers? Uh, 22, yeah. my bad, yeah. my bad. You know, this is the sort of this is the playbook for that wing of the Democratic Party, their economic trend, that, that kind of um, that Davos style economic transformation that they're looking for. This, you know, fourth new industrial revolution. Right. Uh, you know, this is the model. I don't see that Democratic Party promoting anything that's going to be pro labor at this point. In fact, it seems like we're working. Well, it could, uh, it, could it could be way. the kind of thing where you get some weird reclassification of independent contractors alongside something like the pro act, which would be, you know, I don't know, one step forward, two steps back, depending on how you measure things. But look, the, the only model that I have seen uh, in recent history, of the United States work in terms of a grassroots movement taking over one of the two major political parties is how the, the grassroots right took over the Republican party starting in you know, the 60s and with taking the L with Goldwater and all that and understanding that yeah. you were building power from there. But in order to replicate their success, I think the left needs to look at what not not an idealized version of what they are and what they did. But I, I think a an accurate version of what they are and, and also what their natural advantages were. Right. You know, capital, uh, the alliance with capital kind of uh, the intrinsic sort of conservative small government roots in some ways, um, historically of the United States relative to other modern nation states. And I would layer on top of that, the fact that contemporary Republicans, even right wing ones hide the stuff that's unpopular, uh, you know, like, yep. like overturning Roe versus Wade or, or the fact that, you know, you can have, you, you know, Republicans never talk about gutting labor unions until they're in power, and then they do it within the first few weeks so that they can, uh, at the state level. I mean, I mean, those are, um, I mean, they they lie, right? So uh, this this concept that they're always so proud of, you know, they're always so unabashed, and why can't we be more like Republicans? It, it, it's it's not quite the case. Um, they are ruthless. They certainly tactically, they have. I think successfully uh, taken over their own party establishment, but they uh, they are aware of the political laws of gravity, and when they have not been, they have paid for it, and that that includes their inability to retake the Senate in 2012, for example. Uh, the Democrats held the Senate four years longer than they held the House uh, from uh, 2010 to 2014 because Republicans kept nominating people who would say crazy ass shit. Uh, 2012 was the election cycle where Todd Akin, the Republican nominee in Missouri, said that uh, when a woman's raped, she, her body has a way of shutting that thing down. And Richard Murdoch in Indiana said that uh, uh, when a woman's raped and becomes pregnant, it's God's will. And so it has to be brought to, to um, birth. Uh, now, that was an Obama presidential year, and, and those two Democrats uh, were subsequently ousted in 2018, but these were Indiana and Missouri, and it colored the whole national environment. I mean, Republicans will tell you that in the, the heady days of the Tea Party, they had to answer 
for things that uh, the, the craziest thing a Tea Party person would do. Um, and they certainly had to answer for their own president. And so, which of course is not an exact parallel to the, the case right now with the activist left, but I don't think it's unreasonable to say that uh, some of these left-wing elected officials can be thinking a bit more tactically and strategically with the, with the knowledge and, and the benefit of the blessing and the curse that they have an outsized impact on the national narrative and the way their party is, is depicted. I mean, it's a good problem to have, uh, to, to be the face of the party. I think it's something that the left wouldn't have dreamed of uh, 10, 20 years ago. And I think to your point, Adam, um, one of the real problems is, is that they're speaking for an AstroTurf constituency or, or a professional left constituency rather than a true working class one. And, and that's one of the reasons they end up um, sort of getting behind um, radical sloganeering rather than. Yeah. Who's on Twitter, right? Who's on Twitter? Their activist base. But then guess who pulls a tweet out of context in that sense and then and then trumpets it on the on the front page of fox news it would be you know it's akin to like you know if, if somebody listened to something that i said here on dead pun it's sort of preaching to the faithful preaching to the choir um and then sort of trumpeted trumpeted to the mainstream and made me you know account for it to to like my normie friends from from high school or whatever like adam what the fuck did you mean here when you said this thing you know, and it's it's a, it's a it's a problem of translation. It's a problem of translation that occurs. You know, when you're when you're speaking primarily when you're of and from and speaking primarily to a subculture, but then you also have to be relevant and translatable to to the broader culture. And it's not something that politicians have had to do that frequently in in such a meaningful way. And and you know, we're we're still we're still perfecting. I think you know, I'm a big stand for Talib a lot. You know, Rashida Talib is you know she's she's got that attitude. She's got an attitude. She's a fighter. I appreciate it. I like to have those people on my side. You know, I like to have Ilhan Omar going at Akeem Jeffries the way she, that she has. I like to see AOC coming out swinging against, you know, Ted Cruz and others really putting up a or, fight. Or Rahm Emanuel uh, you know, and, and Bruce Reed, you know, I mean, that's yeah. absolutely no, no doubt. No doubt. Going after Reed Emanuel. I think that, I, I think that, I think that, um, there's, there's a lesson here though, right? Like how would, what would Sanders do, right? WWSD as opposed to what does the squad do, right? His instincts harken back to a, a, an era of like left-wing labor-centric populism that is just like, it's obviously, you know, it's long gone and, and we need to bring it back. Rather than suggesting that, you know, um, Spanberger is bad-mouthing or somehow trying to disenfranchise her, you know, Tlaib's black constituents, you know, Bernie would have likely brought it back to the millionaires and the billionaires and the and the and the disenfranchised and the people yeah. without health care and all the rest of it, right? And 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 that's the lesson. And I'm not saying we can't learn from from Sanders' mistakes and missteps. Um, he's pushing a, a a notion of like party unity that I think is really puzzling to some people right now. I, mean, I think he's sort of out at sea, and I'd like to see him have a, a coherent message uh, in, in 2021 and beyond. And I think he will. Now is not the time. But again, there's that strategy, right? Now is probably not the time to come out swinging against the Biden administration that hasn't taken shape yet. If you if you're on the national stage of the Democratic Party, you I think know, it's like, about picking your fights wisely. I think picking we're, your fights, we're seeing exactly. something interesting because and acknowledging that the left just does not have leverage. It doesn't have natural leverage because it lost the presidential primary. It 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 is not looking at you know I think maybe the biggest loser in all of this in terms of the overall election results of the poor performance of the Democratic Party is the left, because if the Democratic Party swept, there'd be a lot more breathing room. 
there'd be breathing room to give Democrats an excuse to vote no on some piece of more left-leaning legislation. There'd be breathing room to to say, um, uh, you know, our our narrative, or, you know, the the sort of liberal narrative won, and so th- there would be a greater comfort level, sort of pressing that advantage. I think, uh, and and the left might even have a few case studies to be able to point to, like. Car Eastman in Nebraska second or Dana Bolter in New York's 24th. These were two Democrats, for example, who had beat the establishment in 2018 and then lost in the general. This time the establishment came around and they lost in the general again. And, and they were progressives and they were an opportunity to show that the progressive candidate could win in a swing district. And especially in Nebraska second, where because Nebraska splits its electoral votes, we know that Biden won that Omaha seat and Car Eastman, the pro-Medicare for all, uh, sort of activist-backed, uh, left-wing suburban mom lost. And, and, and that, you know, really, so I think it's acknowledging that and being able to say, okay, well, what else can we do that would work? If Rahm Emanuel is being floated for U.S. trade representative, which would be way more uh, disastrous than Transportation secretary. Now, I'm not convinced that that has any credibility at all, right? Yeah. But do you want to make it about um, Laquan McDonald? Maybe you do. That was a disaster. But do you also want to try to, are you on the phone with like the communication workers of America seeing if they share your concerns about what Rom would do vis-a-vis China and U.S. trade policy? Mm. I I mean, those are the types of coalitions because labor does have, uh, you know, leverage, right? Um, with Biden. Uh, they certainly did help him on the margins in places like Pennsylvania. Um, and, and, and Biden wants to be something. Like they delivered Wisconsin and Michigan. Right. I, mean, I don't think there's any doubt right. about that. Uh, yeah. And so, they, 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 yeah, then that's the question, right? You know, the question is, you know, we're, we're sort of in a, we're, we're definitely in an interregnum right now, globally. I've talked about this in more highfalutin theoretical macro historical terms, but we're really in an interregnum in a, in a shakeup situation right now, a realignment. We're mid realignment, I think. I know in the American political scene. I mean, for fuck's sake, anytime the Republican Party can make a, a seemingly credible argument to be like the party of the working man in the United States, trust me that we're in the middle of some kind of uh, some kind of realignment shake up right now that that's, that's, um, obviously there's some disingenuity there, of course, but at the same time, like how the fuck would anybody have seen that possible 30 years ago? I mean, 40 years ago, uh, you know, we don't know what's going to shake up. So, Hey, I don't know. I don't know. Right? I try to be humble about this. Maybe the fact that we're in the midst of a realignment, you know, bolsters the the claims of some on the far left for why we got to go all in, why we got to, you know, just fucking scream on social media to try to get, to try to gather up as much ground as we can while the getting is good in this realignment era. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that's- I'll, I'll go little, real radical I'm, here. For I'm just trying to be which fair is, here. Which right? is if like, you're on the left, do try to cultivate some of these, you know, working class curious Republicans. Do you try to say, hey, yeah. you guys can do your thing my agenda is union power and my agenda is um, a manufacturing economy and a, um, a, an anti-corporate, anti-corporate uh, money sort of uh, priorities. It, will you have a conversation with me? Uh, you know, right. and I'm not going to I'm not going to run aground on on the shores of like, you know, woke uh, PMC college educated etiquette. You know, uh, you know, and and that's that's but that's what the Fairfax. Because it could be it could be a situation where 
you know, once again, we're looking at a working class coalition across parties and, you know, with elements of allies in either. I, you know, I think that who controls the floor still matters. And um, the people in charge of the Democratic Party are still more favorable to workers and more less favorable to corporations than the people in charge of the Republican Party. But um, it, if you're trying to to, you know, uh, I mean, I, I covered I looked at the fact that, you know, the. Uh, speaking of building trades unions that, you know, in a place like Pennsylvania, the United Brotherhood of Carpenters, they were making calls for Biden and Matt Cartwright, a Democrat in Northeast Pennsylvania. Uh, and in uh, Bucks County, north of Philly, they were making calls for Biden and Brian Fitzpatrick because Brian Fitzpatrick, a Republican. And and that Republican uh, was claiming that he was a supporter of Obamacare. And uh, he, of course, voted against repeal. And he had enough pro-labor votes that they felt like it was important. I mean, he voted for the PRO Act, this incredibly pro-union bill. And so there are Republicans who are not just rhetoric on this and are trying to put some 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 substance behind it. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Is that, is that part of, of where these seas are drifting? Is that part of the lasting legacy? This is, this is where um, the elements of the far, the, the subcultural far left clutch their pearls and scream of a, a red brown alliance right and these these kind of like mythical like macro historical kind of like um ways that they frame what are actually just like practical pragmatic like policy you know politicking um you know is there a stomach for it and you know I, I don't know um as as optimistic as i am you know if you look at places like bolivia who were who like sort of crushed and defeated by like these this fascist onslaught and now they come back you know stronger than ever like you see the the raw sentiment is still there right and this is what i tried to try to i try to push right in, in my darkest moments like the raw sentiment that, that the enthusiasm around a bernie sanders a, a left-wing populist is still there people still fucking need things people still need health care people still need jobs people still need retirement people still need to be able to go to college have their college debt paid off it's a question of how do you message it and how do you win people over from what are actually quite irrational positions that they hold right people who went to college uh and, and are now is, is, is sinking in debt are not all in, you know, universally in favor of, of debt forgiveness, right? Immigrants who made it to this country and worked their ass off to be here are not all universally in favor of like open borders, right? Like po political beliefs and opinions are not rational in the way that we sort of political operators imagine them to be. And it, the question then is like, you know, it's not that I disagree with anything you've put forward. My, my concern is, is more, more of a matter of emphasis. How do we shift political consciousness in this country? Because that's what needs to fucking happen. We need to reach people. We need to shift political consciousness because you're, you're not wrong. These kind of like masses are not just waiting out there like ready, willing, and able to, to come on board to our agenda if we only give them the chance. It's more complicated than that. It's a lot more complicated than that. And um, anyway, yeah, the only, the only any, thought any I'll, I'll, just, I'll just leave this on is – I should offer some humility too. I think that, you know, I have kind of this short termist thinking about a lot of what works and what doesn't in some of these elections, what has proven to work and what has yet to be proven. And of course, endless theoreticals that, that can't possibly be, be entertained without seeing them being uh, realized and, and played out in real time. But I think that maybe the key critique where you and I uh, can come together is that a movement that even is trying to, to go from a Barry Goldwater to a Ronald Reagan, proverbially, uh, a left-wing version of that, uh, a movement that is trying to build the political power necessary to become, uh, you know, the, the, the working class power necessary to, to transform the United States into a social democracy, 
needs to at least be engaged in the question of what works and what doesn't, even from a long-term perspective. And right now, um, whether you're uh, more of a maximalist like yourself or more of a pessimist like me, I think we both agree that a little too much of what goes on on the activist or professional left from the perspective of somebody of people who, who want to achieve similar goals is done for a sort of aesthetic or spiritual or personal and psychological reasons. And at the very least needs to be uh, placed into a more strategic framework and where one goes with that strategic framework, what one, what, what, what conclusions one draws about uh, sort of the best short-term tactics for advancing a certain strategy is, you know, that there are reasonable people can debate within that, but the kind of um, preening for sport that is is very commonplace on on the so-called left uh, is is a dead end. Yeah, no doubt. We can definitely we can definitely uh, I'll heartily co-sign that statement one hundred percent. And the, the question is, is there even a, a tolerance on the left? I mean, we'll see. I don't know, man. I'm I'm kind of rolling the dice here with this platform with DPS with what I've done for the past four years. Does anybody want to hear? Uh, what I'm saying right now. Does anybody want to eat this meal that I'm serving right now? I don't know, man. We're going to find out. I, that's all I can promise you. I don't have an answer for that, but I do know we're going to find out in the coming year in 2021 and beyond. If Maybe there's nobody left who wants to hear this shit on the left. Uh, maybe we're all won over to kind of subcultural narratives. Maybe we're all just trying to get, uh, and, and you know, no, no, no jabs at any specific person dir- directly from what I'm about to say, but maybe we're all just in it to get our own fucking podcast and, and a slightly hefty Patreon. You know, uh, this sort of pr- proliferation of the lefty podcast industrial complex. And maybe that's all that there is, right? Maybe we're just trying to build like sort of mediocre, crappy careers for ourselves. And and I promise you guys, if, if you want to, if you want a podcast and a Patreon, like I would advise against it. Like it's a really shitty way to make a living. All these people out here who, uh, who are trying to make a buck, um, I'd advise against it. Uh, you know, also, also journalism, probably you can co-sign that one, advise against it if you're trying to get rich. Um, but I don't know, man, maybe that's, maybe that's just me and my overly cynical, uh, moment. I guess we'll see. We'll see. All we can do is, uh, try to stay alive in this pandemic and wait to find out. <laughs> but anyway, D- Dan Marin's, uh, politics reporter over there at Huffington Post, you're always a, a much needed cold splash of water on the face. Come back on TPS real soon. Great to be here, Adam. And that concludes today's program. If you enjoyed what we had to say or hell. Even if you didn't like what we had to say, but you think it's important that we said it, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber of DPS today. Subscribers will be receiving episodes of This American Left, along with our Black Political Thought series that is going to be continuing into the new year and beyond. So if you would like to get the warm and fuzzies of supporting the new left agenda and you'd like to get some bonus content here and there, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits. You know what to do. To patrons... We'll see you later this week, and to the rest of you, we'll see you next week. <laughs>